0: Will you please turn with me in your Bibles once again to the Gospel according to Mark, where we will be looking together at the first chapter, specifically at verses 14 and 15. That's Mark one fourteen and 15, and you can find that passage on page 980 in your pew Bibles. Last week, as I mentioned, we finished up with what really was just the prologue of this book, the first 13 verses of Mark's account of the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we spent the bulk of our time together looking closely at the temptation of Jesus Christ in the wilderness. We are told here in Mark that immediately, following the declaration of the father regarding Jesus Christ following his baptism that Jesus was then driven by the spirit into the wilderness where he would be tempted by Satan for 40 days we saw that Mark does not really go into any real detail here regarding the actual exchange that took place between Satan and Jesus other than to tell us that it happened, it lasted 40 days, and during that time Jesus was alone with the devil and with the wild animals. In other words, he was in the heart of the effects of the fall of our father Adam. Now I'm not going to rehash all of that again this morning, but I do want to remind you of why it is that Mark is so brief here. We have to keep the reason for the writing of this gospel account before us continually as we look together at Mark. Mark wants to tell us about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There is a haste that is present in his narrative. And it's not the kind of haste that just glosses over important details. It's a haste that makes certain to be concise. Mark sticks to the facts. Every word of his narrative has been weighed for its value in expounding upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark wants us to know the monumental weight of this event. He's not going to go into detail in order to sort of humanize the happenings here in the wilderness. He is not mentioning anything here in order that we could sort of perk up our ears and hear the proper methodology employed by Jesus in throwing down the devil and his temptations. No. Mark wants us to see, beloved, what we must see. Jesus was tempted in our place. He, as the second Adam in the wilderness, has endured the temptation of Satan, and he has triumphed. We must see that. We must know that, because, beloved, it is a major component of the gospel itself. Do you understand? Your Savior stood in your place as the second Adam, as your representative, and he stripped Satan of all of his power by combating his lies with the pure, unadulterated truth of the word of God. And we must see that. This is what Mark is all about. He wants to speak to us about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants us to see the glory. He wants us to taste the comfort and to know the joy of coming to grips with the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And beloved, I hope that you have. I want to tell you that each and every week as I sit in my study and I prepare these sermons, I find myself again and again in just absolute awe. Of the grace of Almighty God and the gospel. And I find myself rejoicing in what I have been given in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, there is value in seeing that Jesus used the weapon of the word against the wiles of the devil. The devil has employed the same methodology in his attacks against mankind since the creation. It's a, it's a tactic that I'm sure that we're all familiar with by now, right? Has God really said? That great mantra of the rebellious. He said it to Adam and Eve regarding what God had very clearly said. And here he says the same thing to the Lord Jesus Christ as he stands ready to embark upon a ministry of reconciliation between Almighty God and those for whom He came to save. You remember what happened. God declares from heaven. He reveals His word very clearly and He says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's His declaration. And Satan, of course, on the very heels of that declaration, counters it with what? If... You really are the Son of God. Same tactic. Did God really say? Beloved, we know that tactic, don't we? Do you recognize the cry of your own rebellious heart here? You say, well, Steve, how dare you? I would never question God. I mean, never. Sometimes we... Minimize the law of God into something that seems to us to be a little bit more doable. Did God really say? We try to make the church itself more palatable. We modernize things. We become more relevant. We look at worship. We look at the word. We look at our songs of praise and we say, well, did God really say? Not hitting home yet? Beloved, we lie, we hate, we can be mean-spirited, we gossip, we look at the way in which our brother or sister in Christ fails to live up to those lofty expectations that we ourselves have set for them. We whisper in the dark what we would never say in the light of day, and we justify it because, you know, they're sinners, did God really say did he really say where the word calls us to love mercy and compassion we often feel hatred indignation and we think that what we really want is some justice beloved you get the point right we are not immune to this we know this line of temptation we know the whisper of Satan, did God really say? And Beloved, the truth is, that is precisely what makes this scene here in Mark so beautiful to us. We do these things. We question. We doubt. We manipulate. We finagle and we connive. And our gracious God knows that we do these things. And he sent the only possible remedy for people who do these things. He sent his son, in whom he is well pleased. You understand. Jesus came to do what we are incapable in our sin and trespass of ever doing, he did not succumb to this temptation in the wilderness. He stood in our place, and He triumphed to the glory of Almighty God. And we desperately needed for Him to triumph. Because He triumphed over sin, death, and the devil, beloved, we are free. We are free to trust that He is all that we will ever need. And He even gives us the faith to embrace that truth. We are free to turn from the sin that so easily ensnares us and run into the arms of Jesus Christ. We are free to receive his righteousness so that we too may be declared justified in him by faith faith that he so graciously gives. This substitutionary temptation is an integral part of the gospel. Of Jesus Christ and so Mark stays on course and he forces us to consider exactly what this event means for you and I we must feel the weight of it we must see the burden of Mark to tell us all about it this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God and we know that Jesus triumphed because of the text that is before us this morning. He was tempted alone in the wilderness with the wild animals. Then we are told he was ministered to by angels. And Mark tells us, thus began the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, as he made his way steadfast to the cross. Where he would throw down the power of our adversary, the devil, and satisfy the justified wrath of the Father against our sin and one sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And it is that ministry that you and I need to begin to consider this morning. So I'd like you to follow along as I read now from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Hear now the word of our Lord. Mark says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again this morning we are grateful that we can come before your word this morning. We're grateful for the ministry of the gospel. We're grateful for the ordinary means of grace that we are taking part in even this morning. And so we pray this morning, Father, that you would clear from us all of those things that distract us in this life. That you would clear our hearts and our minds of those many things that trouble us, and that we would give our full attention to your word this morning. And hearing your word, Father, we pray that we would be comforted by it, that we would be transformed by it more and more for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that has continued to strike me about this book, as we've been going through it together over the last several weeks now, is just really how different the Christ and the Christianity that follows him as presented here by Mark are to so much of what passes as even much of conservative Christianity today. Have you ever noticed it? Mark does not begin to expound upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, by astounding us with his gifts, or his looks, or even his charisma. There's no mention here of the first 29 years of his life. Today we want to consider all of these things as we consider which pastor we're going to call to our churches. We want to know if he's winsome or boring. We want to know what his family is like. We want to know if he will confront us or if he will just let things lie. We want to know if he is likable. These are all prerequisites for whether or not we would call a man to the pulpit. But Mark starts here with this strange wilderness baptism. And he forces us to stop what we're doing and think things through. He then moves to this temptation trial and he forces us to think about it, to think it through, to think through the implications of it. And now as he enters this area of Jesus' actual ministry to the people, he surprises us again. Beloved, I want for us to see that the surprise is not simply just a vagueness in detail. It is that to a degree, but... Like the first 13 verses before, it's much more than that. Mark now skips ahead from the temptation of Jesus into his public ministry. And he gives us the time, the place, and the message of the public ministry of Jesus Christ. And I want us to do what we should be getting somewhat used to doing in our looking together at this gospel account. I want us to stop and to think things through, to really consider the implications for for us, because Mark has structured this book in a way for the purpose of expounding upon the wonders of the gospel and getting us to think them through. So let's first consider the very first thing here. We must consider the time, the time. Once again, Mark does not go into any real detail about the time. Many have argued about the time in the storied history of the church. Volumes upon volumes have been written trying to reconcile the so-called discrepancies in the gospel accounts regarding the time. This being but one of them. I'm not going to spend any of our time on those controversies this morning because like so much of this book, the vagueness is here in order to get us to think it through. This is the perfect, inerrant, infallible Word of God and as such, there are no discrepancies. All we know about the time is that Mark picks up from the temptation of Jesus Christ with the imprisonment of John. We do not know how much time has passed from then to now. I've read formulas that try to prove that it had been a year between these two events. But really, we simply do not know for sure how much time has passed. We do not have a date for John's imprisonment. But we know what we need to know that around the time that John was thrown into prison we meet Jesus Christ the preacher/teacher in his own right because we're told that Jesus begins to preach and teach there's no talk here of his preparation for that ministry There's no talk of which famous rabbi that he may or may not have been connected with. We just know that around the time that Herod threw John into prison, Jesus came forward and he began to proclaim the message of the kingdom of God. You know, John spoke continually about what was to come. He had baptized the baptizer. And now it was time for John, who had served his purpose to the glory of God, to decrease in order that the Lord Jesus Christ might increase. We need to know that in order to understand the significance of Mark's emphasis here on time. What does Mark tell us about that time? He says, the time had come. The time had been fulfilled. The time had come. Redemptive history was entering into a critical phase. The Lord of history had arrived. The time was now fulfilled. So Jesus, the Son of God, picks up where his forerunner had left off. And he build upon John's message of repentance, which we're going to get at here in just a moment. Beloved, do you see the emphasis and the importance of the emphasis that Mark is placing here on the time? He's not concerned to detail for us the perfect chronology of every minute, of every second that passed in the Lord's life. He is laser-focused, focused on time, and the weight of that time. This is the moment. John had preached that indeed the king was coming. Jesus preached the message that the king had come. He was there, standing in their midst. He was among them. Do you see why that's important? This is the time of all time. This is the moment that the prophets and the patriarchs longed for. The king had come, the king was present, and with him, the kingdom. This is the Lamb of God. This is the hope and consolation of Israel. This is the substance of every single shadow. The fulfillment of God's promise. This is the one who would reconcile sinful people to almighty God forever. For eternity. This is the king of kings. And Mark says to us, this is the time. King Jesus is stepping out from the shadows as the king coming with his kingdom. If we are to appreciate the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we must know the significance of this moment in time. And Mark says it so that you and I will look at it and consider it. Beloved, consider what this time means for your life the message did not begin and end with repentance or else it begins with repentance which leads to the good news the good news of the kingdom it leads to the gospel we're going to dig into that in just a moment but first we need to see the second thing here we need to know the time and we need to see the place Where is the place that Mark is directing our attention towards? It's easy to miss. Again, we see that Christ and Christianity, the Christ and the the Christianity that we find here in Mark, does not really seem to fit our own preconceived ideas about the way in which these things ought or should work. Because the place is not Jerusalem, it's not the wilderness. It's not some highly populated city or area where, you know, Jesus could make the largest impact numerically. It's not the temple. It's not the school of Gamaliel or one of the other Pharisees. It's not even in Nazareth, his hometown. Where does the time of all time, the beginning of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ take place? Mark tells us. Galilee, let me ask you something this morning. What do you know about Galilee? Why is it here that the Lord of Glory, the greatest preacher to ever grace a human ear, the King of Kings, why here in Galilee? What significance could be in this place that Mark is forcing us to consider as part of our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, like the time, this place is packed with significance. Do you know why? What is it about this place? Well, Mark again wants us to know our Bibles. I've said it from the beginning of this series. Mark knows his Bible. He knows the scripture. And as Mark starts at the beginning, he cannot help but to think of the prophecy of Isaiah as he weighs out the significance of this time and this place. Look with me quickly. Turn with me in your Bibles. Isaiah chapter 9. We're just going to look quickly at verses 1 and 2. It's one I've preached on before. It's one I'm certain is familiar to us. Listen to what Isaiah says. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be on her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, and afterward more heavily pressed her by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a great light has shined. Isaiah is bringing up here the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. What do we know about that place, that land? Well, I can tell you they were both on the northern border of northeast Galilee, just west of the Jordan River. They were also the first areas to suffer from the invasion of the Assyrian king, marking what was the very beginning of dark, dark times for the people of Israel. This region was a place that had been known as being filled with what uh, Scripture calls a mingled group of people, a mixed multitude of both Jews and Gentiles, who had remained there dating all the way back to the time when King Solomon gave part of this region to Hiram, the king of Tyre, in 1 Kings chapter 9. Do you remember that story from 1 Kings chapter 9? We've read it in our worship together. I'm sure I've brought it up in a sermon before. Solomon gave this region to Hiram, the king of Tyre, as a payment... For his efforts in helping and equipping him to build the house of the Lord. Solomon gave Hiram as payment 20 cities in the land of Galilee. And Hiram wasn't happy about it. Being displeased with those cities, Hiram said those cities are Kabul. Which meant good for nothing. Worthless. In Hiram's eyes, this was worthless land. Land that had no real value. He thought, what good could ever come from this land? What of significance could ever take place in this land? It's Kabul. Good for nothing. Well, little did Hiram know that there may have been no more significant geographic location for the people of God. Not only was this the very very place where the first two devastating blows from the hands of the Assyrians would land, but it was also the place where though the people walked in darkness, they would see a great light. Though the people walked in darkness, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ would begin to permeate that darkness here. In this place. Though they were known to the Jews as not being a pure people. Rather they were a mixed multitude. Though they were the first to experience captivity. Though Hiram, King Hiram had said. That the land and the people were good for nothing. God's ways are not man's ways. And this land would in the future become a place. That was only considered with great honor. Beloved I hope you see the contrast here. Isaiah, though having begun to tell of very dark days coming, points beyond those days to the promise that gives hope that the dark days are not going to last forever for everyone. Though Galilee was a land synonymous with darkness, the darkness of captivity, though it was good for nothing, this would be the very place that the Lord Jesus Christ the true light of the world, would begin his earthly ministry of the gospel. Mark wants for us to see it. This time, this place, this message. If we're ever to understand the significance of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must see and understand the significance of this time and this place. Mark tells us that when considering the gospel, that after his temptation in the wilderness, Jesus went and he stayed and he ministered in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the very regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. From the time that he was there, he began to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the message of the kingdom of God. Though the darkness was there, It would not remain. Beloved, do you see the great comfort for the people of God in this wonderful promise? I want to tell you, Mark sees it. He's pointing you towards it. The Israelites looked forward to the time when the darkness would end. The day when those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death would have shining upon them a great and magnificent light. They look forward to, they even longed for the coming of the promised son of David. Who being very light of very light would end darkness for eternity. Who would end the reign of darkness and the reign of oppressors forever. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Mark and you. And I are comforted by this same promise. We, however, are living in a day when it's not just a future hope or a future comfort. But it has now been realized in the birth, death, resurrection, and ascension. The ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The darkness of our own sin and misery has been consumed by the great and glorious light of Jesus Christ and His Word. The gloom that so often seems to overwhelm us is burned away when placed in the brilliant light of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not left in our despair. We have been given all the hope that we could ever need in Him, in His person, in His Work. And it brings us to the final thing that I think we need to see here. And that's the message. It's the time, the place, and the message. What is the light that is coming at a particular time in a particular place, according to Mark? Well, he tells us the message. Jesus picks up where John ended. Jesus preaches the gospel, that is the good news of the kingdom. And what is that good news? The good news is that the time had come. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom has come. And so Jesus says, Repent and believe in the gospel. Do you see, beloved? Mark looks back through the prophets, back through the law, back through the patriarchs, back to the garden, through the void, and he says, Look, here is the one in whom it all comes together. Here is the one light longed for by Isaiah and indeed all of Israel. Here is the Lamb who will take away the sin of the world. Here is the Redeemer. Here is the Lord of history. Here is the substance of every single promise of Almighty God. Here is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, come with salvation in His wings. Again, it doesn't really look like the Christianity that we expect, does it? Mark says that as Jesus begins to preach, He's still saying, repent. Oh, how I fear that we've lost this crucial piece of the gospel in our own day. I want you to understand what takes place in the gospel. Jesus is not brushing your sin under the rug. It's not the great cover-up. You must repent. You know, in the decade or so, 12 years now that I've been the pastor here, I want to tell you that this area of repentance is undoubtedly the question that I get asked more often than any other question. How do I repent? How do I know that I've, I've really repented? Could, could you just walk me through repentance? And in one sense, the answer is no. No. I cannot. Repentance is not something that I can teach you in a PowerPoint presentation or in a half-hour Sunday school class. It's a work of the very Spirit of Almighty God as the Lord Jesus Christ calls His own home through the message of the kingdom of God, through the gospel. Repentance is being so sorry for your sin. That you're sickened by it. And so you turn from it. It's understanding that you are not sinning against men or your spouse or your society. First and foremost, your sin is treason against the God who is. And if we understand the implications of that, then we had better be sorry and turn from it. And please understand, I'm not equating repentance to your becoming perfect through your sorrow. You will not extinguish sin in your life because you realize that that sin's an offense to God. But look at what Mark says. The gospel does not end with repentance. It begins with it. You understand why that's important? Repentance itself does not fix you. It shows you the glory of Jesus Christ. It shows you your own desperate need of Him. It allows you to live in light of it. Repentance points you to the bad news so that you can see the good news in the Lord Jesus Christ. It makes you aware of the darkness so that you can look up and see the great light of the gospel. So, beloved, I'm asking you, do you see it? We must see it. We must feel the weight of Mark's words here because this really is the stuff of life and death. Do you understand what this message of the gospel is? The message of the kingdom of God brought to us from the ministry of our king. It's not an invitation to trade your hard life for an easy one. It's not Christianity. It's not a call to trade your ugly life for a pretty one. It's not you working hard to have the good life. It's not you attending the only church that matters, you know, the one that is growing where all the serious Christians are. It's not going to the church that has the famous pastor or the blogger pastor or the pretty pastor, the funny pastor, the hip and cool pastor. You know, you have none of those things here. (laughs) It's not attending the church that has been in your family for generations. It's not denim jumpers and hair buns. It's not about homeschooling or public schooling or private education. It's not what your bookshelf looks like. It's not your denomination. It's not how clean and pretty your life looks. It's not your name or your reputation. None of those things is the message of the kingdom of God that are pouring forth from the lips of the king himself here. The message of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, is that your king is the one who came to take your sins to the cross so that he could give you his righteousness. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, left the glory that was his with the Father. He came down. He condescended to this world. He wore this flesh, sin accepted. He triumphed over sin, death, and the devil. He willingly went to the cross and received upon himself the punishment that our sin deserves in our place. He died and he rose again on the third day. He ascended to the right hand of the father and the word of God tells us he now lives to intercede for us. Jesus is the long-awaited king who calls you, grants you repentance, and gives to you the faith that you need to see him for for who he is and live a life grateful for the salvation that he has purchased for you with his blood. And Mark wants you to think about that. Jesus Christ, the Son of God is the grand subject of all of scripture. And salvation is in him. How could we ever be content with such inferior kings and inferior kingdoms? Beloved, the question this morning is will you trade the glittering throne of your tiny kingdom for one of absolute servanthood in the big sky kingdom of this magnificent king. That's the question that will go an exceptionally long way into revealing your own heart to you this morning. Which time, which place, and which message make up the breadth and the width and the height of the kingdom of your own allegiance. Which kingdom sounds more glorious to you this morning? Mark wants us to see and consider this kingdom. This message. This place. This time when the gospel began to be preached by its very substance. Will you see it? Let's pray.